If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, please speak to us. Please grant us your spirit that we might hear the depth of the riches of your truth. And Father, please persuade our hearts to love Jesus and to live with him as our King. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Well, to be absolutely honest with you, uh, I've never preached three sermons through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Every time I've come to this part of the Bible, I've either done it in one sermon that does the two chapters or two sermons that do each chapter at a time. Uh, And I've got to tell you that the very great advantage of that approach is that the really theologically rich, rhetorically beautiful stuff at the beginning of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 9 you can concentrate on and completely jump over the bit that occurs in the middle that you don't have the foggiest idea what to do with. Now, in a fit of conscientiousness or possibly neatness, that is, I couldn't work out how to get eight to ten to work together as a series, uh, a couple of months ago now, I committed myself to doing eight to nine in three sermons, which meant that I had to stop and read this middle section of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 slowly many times in the last week. So I'm just going to start by reading it slowly for you and just asking you to start to engage with what exactly is Paul doing and what is going on here. Let me read it for you. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested, and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction." Uh, It's the kind of passage that actually, if you read it slowly and start to think about what's going on, you find it slightly weird and uncomfortable on the first reading, and in fact, I can promise you by the fourth or fifth reading, it doesn't feel a lot better. What's Paul saying, and what sense do we make of it for our own ministry and life in the world? You see, his big point is really obvious. You promise to give, so you'd better jolly well pay up. I mean, that's kind of the essence of everything that he's saying to the Corinthians. But do you notice the kind of emotional and relational pressure that he brings to bear on them in order to bring that about? Now, 
His goal is stated, I think, three times. Verse 24 of chapter 8, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Chapter 9, verse 3, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. And then verse 5, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Paul's overwhelming purpose is to persuade them to come good on their word, and he does that by, well, in chapter 8, by forming together perhaps the greatest array of kind of Christian royalty that's ever been gathered, Uh, and then in chapter 9, turning to this issue of boasting to the Macedonians and their response and their actions. So just chew on this with me for a moment. First of all, he says, I'm sending you three different people who are all spectacularly amazing as far as being their Christian godliness and reputation is concerned. So, firstly, he's sending Titus, who is their brother who's already been to them and gone back to Paul with the good report of how they're going, uh, and who we're told is earnest and eager and coming to them of his own accord because of his confidence in them. Then after Titus, we're introduced to the second brother who has no name, but if you're looking for an epitaph or for a line on your resume, this has got to kind of really cut it, right? With him we are sending the brother, verse 18, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I mean, if you were looking for one line that you wanted people to describe you with, that's kind of right up there, right? But he doesn't stop there. In fact, it's not only that, literally, Paul, verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So we're sending you the most famous Christian we can think of sending, and we're sending him in order to do this thing which is for the very glory of the Lord Jesus. You can feel Paul piling on the kind of weight of relational and external pressure. And then he moves on to his third member of this trinity of Christians, verse 22. With them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Perhaps he's not quite as famous as the others, but he's tested and he's earnest and he's the most earnest he's ever been because he's confident of how you're going to act. And then in case you missed the kind of array He sums it all up in verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. I mean, (laughs) is there anything else that he could do to describe these people to you in a way that would help you to hold them in higher esteem than, than you actually do? And all of it comes to the pointy end at verse 24. So give proof to the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Um, I feel emotionally uncomfortable just watching on from the sidelines. Can you imagine what it felt like to be one of the Corinthians who was sitting there reading the letter, which was probably read in the presence of the three guys who actually brought the letter, I don't know how they're feeling either, but anyway, that's another story. As Paul declares all of the magnificence of these people and their purpose in being here amongst you. 
And just in case you think kind of Paul's reached the zenith of his ability to kind of persuade, in chapter 9, he turns around and does this little kind of dance between the Corinthians and the Macedonians. Listen to it again. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's where the Corinthians are, has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. You hear what he says? Told you about the saints in Jerusalem. You said, hey, we're going to give. I told the churches in Macedonia, hey, the Corinthians are going to give. They gave out of their poverty. And now some of the Macedonians are coming with me to see you. So what's going to happen if you don't give? There is a lot of emotional weight and pressure going on. Verse 5, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. To contextualise, imagine your church has promised to make a large donation to Anglicare. And then someone writes to you and says, we're sending to you Philip Jensen, Simon Manchester and John Chapman to collect. And all the other churches that we told about your gift have already given as well. So when we come, you'd better be ready. Right. Now, this is chapel, and what I'm about to do is incredibly culturally inappropriate, but for 30 seconds, with the person beside you, how happy or comfortable are you feeling about Paul's pastoral tactics? Go. Now, the problem is it's going to go quiet in here. I have no idea what's happening in KLT. If you're continuing to talk to each other, stop it. It's actually incredibly uncomfortable, isn't it? Uh, For many of us, culturally, this feels inappropriate and unreasonable in all sorts of ways. Uh, But if you actually stop and think about it, um, let's just think from Paul's perspective for a moment. He is so clear that the Corinthians actually have an obligation to keep their word because that is what it means to live out their faith under the Lord Jesus. And he's actually willing to challenge them quite significantly to bring to fulfilment the obligation that they have. I don't know whether you often feel that way about the significance of your words and of your yeses and of your noes and what you promise and what you say to people. But for Paul, what they had promised was so important that it was right to actually persuade them under Christ to do what they'd said that they were going to do. 
And as I've read this passage, the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount keep ringing in my ears. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And as James would later describe it, let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Being and doing who and what you say it is that you will be and do as a Christian uh, is fundamental to our nature and character because it is the nature of our Lord who spoke and was the truth in every circumstance. So I guess one of the questions to ask is, are you who you say that you are? Do you paint a masterpiece with your mouth and sketch an arid landscape with your life? Is there a gap between the way that you speak about yourself and the way that you act? And I think in ministry there are lots of little traps for us in this space. Um, It's so easy in the moment of being invited to do something to say yes quickly without working out whether you can actually fulfil that responsibility and love others well in the doing of it. Sometimes we're quick to say yes or no or a promise or whatever else it is and without thinking about the consequences of our words for other people around about us and for whether or not we can fulfil all the promises that we have in fact made. At heart, at the very least, this passage is saying that keeping your word is fundamental to the nature of being Christian. And so I guess I want to invite you just to think about are there spaces in your life where maybe you're not fulfilling what you said that you will do And do you need to actually go and deal with that in some way, shape or form? Now, having looked at that kind of main point of the text, I want to just stand back a bit with you and think a little bit about the nature of this kind of, um, and at the risk of kind of channeling Dan Wu here, the significance of honour and shame. Um, Sorry. Um, It's fascinating that for Paul... Either disobedience or obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is a matter of honour or shame before God and actually before other people. And it's so significantly an act of honour and shame, which I don't think is the category that we often think about it. In fact, I know that for me as a kind of Western individualist, I find it very easy to kind of critique the nature of collectivist cultures and family pressure that gets put on people and unhealthy godlessness and sinfulness, and all those things are, of course, possible. But what I don't often realise is that my godliness is actually a matter of honour or dishonour before Jesus. It's a right thing of honour or shame to either love and obey Jesus or to disobey him, both in the sight of God and before my brothers and sisters in Christ at various places where I live. And so Paul in 9.4 when he says, if the Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Um, that's not just sort of come some sort of empty relational threat. That would actually be awful for you to have promised and for them to come and for you have not to have met your word would actually be a relational failing, a deep um, relational failing as a servant of Jesus. The third thing that I want to point out about the passage, though, is that in the face of the honour and shame that's inherent in obedience and disobedience, Paul wants to say obligation is real in Christ, but he still wants you to do it willingly rather than begrudgingly 
And he wants you to do it out of a full heart rather than because it's been squeezed on you from the outside. So you remember back in chapter 8 and verse 5, he describes the Macedonians and he said, they gave not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. He's so excited that their giving was ultimately out of their sense of a knowing of their Lord and Master and out of a relationship with him. And Paul's even here, as he puts the pressure on them, very interestingly, do you notice, Paul's actually creating a gap between him and the brothers to give the Corinthians space still to do it willingly rather than unwillingly. Chapter 9, verse 5. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange to give you space in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. There's this complexity in the Christian life, isn't there? If you know and love Jesus, is godliness an obligation? The answer is it absolutely is an obligation. It's not an if or but. It's not an optional extra for the Christian life for you to obey and keep the words of Jesus. And yet at the same time, the apostle wants that to grow out of a sense of the privilege and love and grace and wonder of Jesus Even as you feel the weight of obligation, he wants you to exercise that duty in delight because you've understood that this is actually the way it is to live as the people of God under Christ. Brothers and sisters, I think there's a lot of chewing and reflecting and thinking about what that looks like in terms of your own teaching ministry and your own ministry with people one-to-one. What does it mean to share with people both the obligation of the new life that we have with Jesus as Lord, but to share with them that it is for our good and it is of the character of our King to live these truths out? How are you going at holding on to both the obligation and duty and the reality of delight as you seek to persuade people to live faithfully under Jesus? And finally... Just as one last little observation, chapter 8, verses 20 to 21, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honourable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. As Paul seeks to undertake this ministry, as he seeks to bring the obligation and the delight to the Corinthians, he's also profoundly aware of his own responsibility before all of them and before God to act in a way that is above board and not just above board but seen to be above board by both the Lord Jesus and by all of the brothers and sisters in the Lord. There is a deep and complex interplay around the nature of integrity and honour and shame and acting in the sight of God and in the sight of others that breaks down and helps us to think more deeply about some of the slogans that we use. Yes, it is right to not care about the opinion of men and to want the opinion of God. There is a truth in that. But there is another truth, which says that actually the opinion of your brothers and sisters in Jesus and the open display of who you are in relationship with them matters in every way relationally. So I just want to ask you today, by the grace of God, do you realise your obligation under Christ to keep your word? 
in Jesus, do you realize it's actually your delight and privilege to do so? Are there spaces where you need to go and fix up your yes being yes or your no being no? And is there a gap between what's going on in the reality of your life and what's appearing in your relationships with the people around about you? Um, as I thought about it, God already knows, right? Even if you're trying to keep it to yourself and whatever else, God already knows. Uh, and the best thing that you could possibly do is actually come clean with him and come clean with someone that you trust um, if that's actually going on for you. Um, I'm just going to pray now that we would remember God's goodness to us in the gospel and that God would help us to take action if we need to take action. Our precious Father in heaven, thank you um, for this really uncomfortable bit of 2 Corinthians. Thank you for Paul and for his awareness of our need of integrity before you and others. And Father, even as we speak about it, we're aware of the discomfort in our own hearts. So Father, we pray that you might remind us again of the privilege and delight of being made like you and living out what we profess. And we pray, please, Father, for the strength and help of your spirit in those spaces where we become aware of the gaps between who we are and what we say. Father, help us to own those. Help us to go to people and speak the truth in love and be honest about ourselves. And please help us to confess to you and bring change. Father, we pray that you might do it so that Jesus would be honoured. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you.